Hello, and welcome to the 10th episode of our Understanding Class series. Today is Monday, the 14th of March, 2022, and I'm your host, Tom O'Brien. This week, we start Chapter 3, The Meta-Theoretical Foundations of Charles Tilley's Durable Inequality. If you'd like to support the show and get your hands on those extra Patreon-only episodes and access to the Emancipation Network Discord server, please head on over to the Patreon and throw me a few commie dollars. It really does help keep these episodes flowing. Okay, let's join the discussion. And remember, the slides are in the show notes. Okay, today we are uh, here. We're going to start on chapter three. This is quite a, a large chapter. We'll see how we get on today. We'll probably get at least halfway through it. This is the meta-theoretical foundations of Charles Tilly durable equality. With the general gist of this book is kind of, you know, Eric Olin Wright looking at all of these, a lot of normie socialism, socialism, sociology, yeah, normie socialism, sociology from a kind of a Marxist perspective and seeing what kind of holds up. So today we're going to have a look at this dude, Charles Tilly. Okay, so I'll take the first slide here and we'll talk a little bit about this chapter. One of the, the strengths is, which is kind of probably unusual for sociology, I'm not a sociology expert, but it seems like it stuck out to me, is that one of its strengths is that it might be wrong. <laughs> that like you can actually test some of, empirically some of the predictions. And it, it makes the case that beliefs, attitudes, and culture may contribute to stabilizing inequality, but they are of less causal importance in explaining inequality than the organizational structures in which inequality becomes embedded. So this like Tilly is kind of like making like a, a, a Marx type argument. He does not pull his punches in advancing po- bold and provocative claims. It maps out a positive research agenda and basic underlying structure of his argument brings him close to the core logic of classical Marxism. Anybody have any comments on that as a kind of a general summary of what we're going to be jumping into? Yeah, so this, I mean, I think under the influence of uh, structuralism, you know, at least in uh, America, Canada, Tilly's thesis kind of goes against the majority view of what, what most people believe about inequality right now, where like structuralism kind of muddies the waters here a bit uh, in the sense that like, yeah, you can talk about like structural oppression and attribute that to organizational structures. But for a lot of people, you know, there's like privilege checking and that kind of stuff that Tilly would say is, um, is of, of, of actually quite little importance in uh, creating inequality. So uh, it's a it's a controversial point of view. Uh, Tilly's is controversial. I would say so. Yes, if if you if you advance these arguments to most people on the left in Canada, I think they would find them offensive because th- there is like a kind of slippage into something like what Tilly's describing with that influence of structuralism. Uh, like in terms of saying, oh yeah, like these organizations are structured in such a way that they oppress people and reproduce inequality. But I think for a lot of people, 
it's more down to are you woke enough? You know, badly say what do you think? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, because yeah, kind of there's a kind of slippage between the structuralist position and the radlib position for most people on the left in 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 Canada and the U.S. I would say. Oh yeah, I would I would definitely say and, the U.S. too. There's a I think a slippage is a good way to describe it because you see a lot of you know mostly liberal rad radlib kind of people talk about you know institutions and structures of racism but really what they mean is that a lot of people in aggregate hold racist beliefs basically <laughs> like they're using the like, like structuralist language uh, to to describe like very individualistic modes of thinking aggregations of individuals versus actual structures Right. Yeah, it, it tends to be like a, a structural description of the problem, the general problem, and then prescribing individualistic solutions to those structural problems, uh, I think was maybe one way you could describe it. Yes, the, the, a paper, the paper straw solution to global warming. Okay, let's move it along. Okay, so... Here's the argument, okay, the explanandum. I had to look that up. Did anybody else here know what explanandum was? I, I, I kind of knew what it was, but I still had to look it up to make sure. I figured he made it up until I looked it up, and I'm like, oh, I guess <laughs> thing. <laughs> Kyle knew it, I bet. Uh, yeah, I think when I read it, I understood what it meant. Same here, but I still had to look it up. <laughs> you know, that's what yeah. I say. Yeah, because it's quite it's quite close to the world to the word explained, isn't it? Okay, now what's to be explained? Okay, so this is what the Hitchelli is trying to explain with his thesis: is a uh, durable inequalities that last from one social interaction to the next that persist over whole careers, lifetimes, and organizational histories. These durable inequalities almost always are built around categorical distinctions among people rather than around gradient attributes of individuals. Okay, so more about, say, being, say, black or being a prole than it is about, like, whether you're smart or, like, handsome or whatever, you as an individual. Thirdly, large inequalities and advantages among human beings correspond mainly to categorical differences, such as black, white, male, female, citizen, foreigner, Muslim, Jew. Muslim or Jew, that's pretty fitting week for that uh, one, rather than to individual differences in attributes, propensities, or performances. So anybody have any comments on this slide, on his general argument? It's kind of pretty pro, it's kind of pretty up our street here, this kind of class slash category kind of understanding of inequality. Anybody have any thoughts on like the definition as how, how it would last from one social interaction to another? I mean, I think the way that Tilly describes the causality of these categories reproducing inequality more or less tracks with what I've read in history about the origins of some of these categories and why they became oppressive distinctions. So I, I found this to be fairly convincing. It's certainly not an argument that denies the importance of mental representations of the world. And uh, I think it, you know, the way he describes that, yeah, you basically like 
if you think about the origins of the system of racism, it tracks pretty closely with what Tilly describes as the kind of like incentives and causal functions uh, that reproduce these these inequalities. I found that when I was writing up these slides, like uh, these are direct quotes from you know the book description here of like citizen foreigner, male, female, black, white. But the Muslim Jew one really stood stood out to me. I kind of felt a bit dodgy writing that distinction at the time, but it's like, it's extremely apt given the week that, that we've just gone through. Yeah. Yeah, but like like Kyle said, it it at least has the strength of tracking empirically with the patterns of, of oppressive categories, like throughout history. Yeah, like, you know, for example, the creation of a, a like tabulated race system in the Caribbean in order to deal with certain labor and immigration issues uh, that the authorities had. It's like literally they were creating these categories in order to perform the kinds of defensive inequality maintenance that uh, Tilly describes. Yeah. I mean, what's interesting, they're binary categories, but they're also somewhat, with the exception of male-female, they're actually somewhat Capricious. If you know anything about like the Spanish Empire, you could get a, a, a writ of blood, for example, which would legally put you in a different racial caste. So you know you could you could actually literally be become white, like legally in a way, unlike the way you know it happens in the Anglo colonies where it was social and passing. But what's interesting about this is what's a little bit hard to disaggregate in Tilly is when are these like post hoc categorizations to maintain say power differentials and when are they kind of a second order form of class is a little harder to say depending on which one you're looking at right yeah like citizen foreigner like that could be you know not really much of a thing in given you know in, under certain circumstances right yeah. and, and with the pathway of the development of like nations and the nation state that's often it often gets subsumed into other usually racialized categories. Like if you're, if you're non-white in the United States, people often will treat you as something of a foreigner, even if you were born here. Like, for example, my name comes from India and I have on many occasions told someone my name and they're like, Oh, where are you from? And I'll be like, Oh, I'm from California. And they'll be like, no, where are you actually from? (laughs) Because you know, that, that sort of like marks you as someone who is not, uh, who doesn't really belong in a sense to that kind of category of like the, the nation state, the inside versus outside that nation state. Well, that, that's an interesting problem in the whole uh, like citizen versus foreigner in a quasi racialized nation state. I mean, even like because when you think about citizenship in the Roman Empire, that's not citizenship to a nation state, that's citizenship to an empire. And yet, even if you read stuff from the late Roman Empire, and these are a people without a strong, without a, any strong conception of what we would call race, every now and then you'll still hear people grumbling about citizens looking Germanic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think it's because these uh, categories are, are, are quite fluid. Uh, except, so except for the Germans. Except for the Germans. Except for the Germans. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the the other thing I would say is that the. The male-female distinction is also becoming increasingly capricious. I know, I know people who have transitioned and 
basically experienced a radically different treatment uh, according to their categorization. So, yeah. Have have you read some of the different sociological takes on on what happens in in, in both transitionings because it can be shocking in both ways. So, yeah, um, I haven't read the sociology. I've just talked to people of firsthand experience. Yeah, like the 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 female to male transition have incredibly high uh, suicide rates, which is kind of depressing. Yeah, I only know I only know uh, trans people online. Like, I don't know any any in my real like my real life non-online and uh, nearly everybody like all these communist people they're all trans it's kind of bizarre i'm just like this cis weirdo who's uh, befriended all these commies what's wrong with me it just means you're an egg and haven't figured it out yet what's an egg you'll you'll get there I, like I work with young people, so so I do deal with a lot more people who are experimenting with that. Although I don't deal with a lot of people who've transitioned until they're, you know, and and let, except in communist circles or in the, in in the city. I, I I think though the male female is interesting because I'm going to say something somewhat controversial. There's always been fluidity in that one, but you could semi-attach it to biological physical difference in a way you kind of can't now for for frankly both social and technological reasons you know 100 years ago there was no way to transition so it's interesting how how these social categories and these legal categories also are in like pretty big feedback loops with with changes in technology and social class and i think the male female uh, non-binary, et cetera, is where that's the most obvious if people like really think about it, because we can now do things we could not do before. Derek, which was the the Pope that was a woman? There was a Pope that was a woman, wasn't there? Pope Joan, although they have never proven Pope, Pope, Pope Joan actually existed. And the way that they, according to the legend of Pope Joan, um, the way they found out is when Pope Joan died, they that's went just... to treat the body and, well... <laughs> there you go, that's... No. Let's move. We move on to the next one. The Meta Theoretical Foundations. Okay, so Tilly's approach is built upon two meta theoretical foundations one, anti individualism, and two, combinatory structuralism. Okay, that's quite a mouthful. Explanations of inequality must be at their core social relational. To the extent that individual attributes explain inequalities, they are explanatory by virtue of the nature of the social relations within which those individual attributes operate. He analyzes the basic elementary forms with more complex structural configurations, analyzes specific forms of combinations of these elementary forms. And these forms are the equivalent of the periodic table of elements in chemistry. Okay, what do people think of uh, combinatory structuralism then? So basically... I'm trying to figure out how this is different from basic intersectional theory, except that it's slightly, it comes from a slightly different uh, purpose. Starting point. Yeah, yeah, starting point. Because uh, intersectional uh, intersectionality under Crenshaw starts actually as as a case of legal analysis and figuring out like when strict versus medium scrutiny are applied in the U.S. You know, systems of uh, discriminatory law. And if you don't, you like there's different. Yeah, there's different forms of scrutiny. With this, oh, man. So explanations of inequality must be at their core social relational. We all agree with that because, like, 
inequality in, in systems that are legal have to do with access access if this is an oppression system that that's formalized into the law in some way and it also has non-legal or social stigmas so it has so that's relational right you can't have a non-relational social structure to the extent that individual attributes explain inequalities they are explanatory by virtue of the nature of the social relations with so i guess this is saying that even if there are say physical differences between categories of people like sexual dimorphism between between the various sexes that the inequalities are actually still relational because there's no value behind small well, they're situated in their relation isn't that is right 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 they're situated in their relation so this is only an inequality in a way that puts one above another because of the relationship we've established and because how we're using that right so okay and uh, analyzes basic elementary form, the more complex structural configurations are specific forms of these elementary forms. This is where I don't know what the hell we're talking about. Kyle or Tiberius, do you, can you explain this to me? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's more sort of like uh, evolutionary confluence with intersectional theory. Basically, you're taking various forms of recognized differences and then combining them together to see where you fit within the hierarchy, basically. Like that's okay. my reading of it, at least. So it's so it's a very complicated hierarchy matrix, basically. And the simple forms are like the ones that we can immediately look at. But then, like, if I am a cis height West Indian poor foreigner, that is going to put me in a different point in the hierarchy matrix than say a trans white uh, bourgeois bourgeois Caitlyn Jenner figure. Like, right. so there's definitely. There might still be multiple inequalities in the in the in the greater person in that hierarchy, but the, in the matrix of things, I see. I think we might be making this more like intersectional theory, though, because the basic elementary forms with the more complex structural configurations. What exactly is that? What do you think? So I think I, I think like he's making the case like that. It's I I feel like this point, if I understood it correctly, is kind of a not a really a Marxist point, as in like the the kind of core stuff that that comes out from Marx is like, you know, your relationship to the production, also your gender. So like, you know, they're the kind of, that's the the initial angle say, uh, Marx say I, the, I, I, I think we're getting a little tripped up here. So I'll just give you a, a quick rundown of what's in the book here. So the elementary forms are off of two menus. So one is a menu of types of social relations, and the second is a menu of inequality generating mechanisms. So you have a chain hierarchy, triad organization, and categorical pair are types of social relations. And then you have exploitation, opportunity hoarding, emulation, and adaptation as the causal mechanisms. Okay, yeah. Uh, sorry, that was the next yeah, so, the next slide. Yeah, sorry. So, so yeah, yeah, so the the elementary types are very formal. They're not like really empirical types. They're they're just like things you could put on a graph basically. Yeah, like one thing that's yeah, sorry because it's yeah, it's about a week or two since I've done the slides, so I've kind of forgot. So like these type of social relations here that are not actually defined in the book. So does anybody know how we can what these individual ones are? This is like stuff that you would find in social network analysis. So you have a chain, which is like A to B to C. 
then you have hierarchy where you have, as you can imagine, like a point at the top and points at the bottom that connect up to it. You have a triad, which is literally just a triangle. Or organization, it says here, um, of these five elementary forms of social relation, the most pivotal for the study of durable inequality, Tilly argues, is organization. I, I presume so that's I, some I think what he means by organization is a complex combination of the first three. Uh, right. It would be an organization. And then uh, a quick categorical pair would just be like the pairs that he outlined above, uh, as in like male, female, rich, poor, uh, citizen, okay. foreigner. So that would apply like across entire social maps. It'd be a very general thing. So he's making a, he's basically making a, a, a access point. Then the most important is the organizational structure, which is, you know, I think that's quite a Marxist point as opposed to the categorical pair. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. But would the categorical pair be how we actually tend to conceptualize this as opposed to seeing it within its framework in the larger organization? Like this is, I haven't, this is where having read right, but not Tilly is not helpful. So I've read the, the right section now multiple times, but I've never read what right is writing about. So, yeah, I mean, categorical pair would be like bourgeois proletarian, right? Right. So it's pretty, pretty fundamental to Marxist analysis. I think what he's saying, though, is if you want to look at the causal mechanisms, you need to look at the organizations first and foremost, because uh, he's interested in a sociology of this subject. So I guess that's where he goes to. I just wanted to say one other thing is like, if you look at like a broad social network, you would probably see like a bifurcation of groups according to categorical pairs, even as they're connected across each other in organizations. And um, could you not also say like, just from a kind of a kind of a math point that like you could represent like the categorical, the distinction between what's a categorical pair and an organization is kind of fluid. Like if you were to pick proles versus like bourgeois, I know like uh, like that yeah. they have they, there's organs that map on to those categorical pairs pretty pretty well. That it's it's kind of a uh, yeah. I think I think what's going on there is that you would have organizations and you would see a degree of clustering between amid categorical pairs. Uh, that you would see as significant, but mathematically speaking, yeah, I don't think that there okay, is a yeah. there's a strict uh, form that you could attribute to categorical pair. Yeah. Okay. It would be more of a statistical guess, thing. Yeah. yeah. So I guess the thing that that was kind of tripping me up when I was when I was reading this, and and the reason why I brought up that it seemed to me like it was something of ending up at the same place as intersectional theory, but just coming from a different from a different theoretical foundation is that it seems uh, like I, I read this as being the categorical pairs form the the sort of like basis of of the distinctions, essentially, like the the ways in which you you look at like cis versus trans, male, female, black, white, that kind of thing. And then the the chain hierarchy triad organization and raw categorical pair were just the ways in which like the the ways in which you you combine those 
those social distinctions into actual relationships, social relationships. I'm just wondering, like, where does uh, Tumblr fit in here? Like, how could he have left out Tumblr as one of the core types of social relationships? Well, yeah, <laughs> Tumblr is just an amoeboid that uh, that crosses all of these types of social relationships. To be, to be, to be fair, anything can become a, an organization. It seems vaguely designed. It could have both ribosomic and centralized patterns. So Tumblr Where? is an organization. Tumblr is a body without organs, but the only organ it's missing is the brain. <laughs> yeah, the the. The uh, body with organs and the body without organs are both organizations. Yep. They're, they're just different forms of orgs. I mean, basically, the only thing I took from that part of Tilly is categorical pairs playing your role in organizations, and everything is probably an organization. Have a nice day. Like, yeah. I think the, the actual, this, this kind of nomenclature of spitting out the chain, hierarchy, triad, and then organization, it seems kind of like chain seems pretty fucking non-relevant to social relations unless you're sending one of those fucking letters you used to get in the post saying if you don't if you if you don't send this on you'll get 10 years of bad looks it's actually not it's actually not irrelevant because um people who are in the middle of a chain tend to occupy a power broker position uh, because they're connecting two different networks so yeah, so it, it's it's not uh, irrelevant. Uh, it, it, it comes up all the time in social network analysis. Think about think about when we talk about using strikes as logistic choke points, even between equal parts of the economy. That's 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 a weak point in a chain. But would that not be a, an organization on one side with a well, single uh, connecting node and an organization on the other, as opposed to a long chain? I, it's well depends on what level of analysis you're doing. That's the problem with trying to do this stuff as pure. This, that's why systems analysis and sociology is so complicated. <laughs> like even articulating it, as Kyle is making very clear, is you know even articulating it in ways that are mathematically valid is hard because you're dealing with when you start looking at like a like just a, a polity, just like a city, the numbers of different interacting organizations and organizational loops you start dealing with that one person can be a node in is incredible it builds very very fast so what i like about this tilly foundation is unlike a lot of dumb critical theory ways of talking about oppression it is very rare for a for a power relationship to be monolithic like you'd have to be in like a very strict hierarchical system for the power relations to be monolithic and the other insight that we kind of came up to is there's a very hard way to formalize this, but you can kind of approach the only way you can kind of really approach it, it would be like basically mapping it onto a statistical model. Okay. I actually used to work, I actually worked in some like using those social network analysis tools when uh, I worked <laughs> trying to find fraud networks a long time ago. Fuck me. Hated that job. Right. Uh, I had to sign the Official Secrets Act for that job. Couldn't fucking believe it. Right. Okay. I've 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 clearance. Do, you, do people know that? I've got actual clearance in the British system. Oh, I guess it's not a rumor. Tom is a cop. I, I well, yeah. <laughs> I, I do you know, want to know my want to know my security clearance level. It's uh it's UK caveated and NATO restricted. And I looked it up. It, essentially it's the lowest level of clearance. <laughs> because basically, you know, like I've 
And where I grew up, like my milkman was in the IRA, got caught with fucking bombs and everything. Basically, I'm, I'm allowed to see nothing, <laughs> like literally nothing. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, they actually gave me, you know, they get they gave me at the time a, a USB key so that you could lock a USB kind of a key thing that you could put into your laptop that would like you had to get the password right so that you could log into your computer. And if you got your password wrong 10 times, it would self-destruct. That is not a lie. It would literally explode in the chip inside would detonate if you got it wrong ten times. Okay, James Bond. Okay, so these are the meta. So these are the causal uh, the causal inequality generating mechanisms. Let's discuss these four. So two of them we've uh, discussed ad nauseum: exploitation and opportunity hoarding. In the previous ones, this time he's also adding these two: emulation and adaption. Okay, do you want to take this slide then instead, Kyle, the explanatory strategy? Sure. Uh, okay, so Tilly adopts a variety of functional explanation. Uh, so that's a sort of type of uh, sociological explanation. He argues that certain kinds of social structural relations are solutions to problems generated within social systems. So they are functional for addressing these problems. Uh, the functional explanations allow for struggles and contradictions and extended periods of disruption. So uh, essentially they are functional, but they are not uh, perfectly so. They tend to uh, interfere with one another and not uh, set in a functional way all the time. He does not believe that uh, functional solutions are spontaneously secreted by social dynamics entirely behind the backs of actors. Uh, so they're somewhat uh, consciously derived, uh, not just through uh, blind trial and error. And intentional strategies of collective actors are part of the explanation for how solutions are found and institutionalized. Uh, so yeah, the, the not behind the back, uh, strategizing figures into this. And finally, Tilly poses a problem generated by a set of social relations and then treats the demonstration that a particular social form is a solution to the problem as the core of the explanation of that social form. So, oh, here's problem one. And then uh, here's a solution to problem one. And by looking at the solution, we can see how it is functional in addressing problem one. So, like, I don't think any of us have any arguments with, with this setup here. I think this is kind of, it kind of explains how I, I think. Anybody? Yeah, I mean, as E.O. Wright says, uh, uh, Marxist explanations tend to be functionalist explanations. Yeah, but not hardcore, like, just the, fu just the functionalist, but that, you know, there are acts, there is, you know, men make their history, but not in their conditions they choose or whatever. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we're all soft functionalists, which as a paradigm can confuse the hell out of other sociologists. Yes. <laughs> Expand on that, Derek. This is why, like, when, when when a sociologist approaches Marx like a cannibal approaches a baby, they always go up saying, well, Marx is just a conflict theorist, and then, like, that's pretty much it. And that's because, like, Marxism has a pretty highly developed political economic critique, a bimodal view of the conflicts in society, but multiple modes of that. I mean, that's why you have modes of production and relations of production, right? And we also still generally believe 
and human agency, but it's situationally limited by a bunch of external context and by its own ideological framework, which because you're a soft functionalist, meaning like we don't explain everything solely by their functions, but we do think functional explanations are mostly what drives these things. It's actually a lot of sociologists don't know what to do with us, basically, because when they try to simplify it down to a singular paradigm, they're like, they either go modes of production, stages, theory of history, and then oversimplify the modes, or they go conflict theory. That's what you're really about. Society is driven by conflict, the end, which both of those are actually not really what, you know, Marx or Engels are actually about, even though we think history is progressed by conflict, et cetera, et cetera, and so forth. Society is relational. It's like how everyone reads Marx and thinks we're saying that labor is the source of all wealth. And that's also wrong. I mean, explicitly so. Everybody knows, particularly Tiberius knows that, you know, anime is the true driving source of force of society. Am I right, Tiberius? Oh, I'm going to get you for that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Tiberius, how, why did you take this uh, slide here? Problem one. So the theory is built up through a sequence sequence of three nested problems to be solved and their associated solutions. So here we have problem one, how to secure and enhance rewards from the resources to which one has access. And the solution here being opportunity hoarding and exploitation, which, as Kyle mentioned, we've discussed ad, ad nauseum for the last, I don't know how long this has been a network. So these two mechanisms are particularly important in stabilizing and enhancing advantages derived from access to value-generating resources. Tilly accords exploitation a more fundamental role over the social production of durable inequality because of its centrality in underwriting the power and privileges of the elites. So opportunity hoarding sort of exists as a way to, to maintain advantages gained through exploitation. However, the exploitation within this framework tends to be more fundamental in generating those opportunities in the first place. But opportunity hoarding complements the exploitation by creating sustainable advantages for various non-elite categories. So, so those who are not directly within the exploiter class can use the opportunities generated by that class in the perpetuation of exploitation to gain opportunities of access to the value generated by the exploitation, even if they are not within that sort of exploitative class directly. So I would say middle so, managers in an organization. So be careful using the word value anywhere, unless it's explicitly Marxist value, because that'll confuse everybody immediately. But right. Go ahead. Yeah, but this is this is what these are. These are direct. Uh, I know they're direct quotes, and it's and it's and it's also Tilly's form of value, not ours. So right. Yeah, I think uh, the main takeaway here for me is that Tilly basically follows the the form of uh, classical political economy. It's pretty much what this is saying. It's, yeah. You know, exploitation is primary. Opportunity hoarding is secondary. Uh, you have the production of the social surplus and then its distribution among the different classes. 
according to opportunity hoarding. So yeah, pretty much in the line of classical political economy. Well, even more so, I mean, like according to Tilly, would it even still fit be, uh, like the idea that you would have strata more than classes using opportunity hoarding to compete? That would be where the opportunity hoarding would be the strongest, actually, because like you're effectively equals without it. Right. Like so like. Yeah. Yeah, like me as a as a as a pro who has some some managerial role, but no capital, no, I'm not paid in stocks or anything. I'm gonna probably try to opportunity hoard within my firm as an individual or as in a small group more than I would otherwise. This also explains like opportunity hoarding between race, gender categories, ethnic categories, etc. But Tilly's point being with classical uh, political economy and with Marx is all this is still built on top as kind of a, it's almost uh, what's interesting about it is like in your daily life experience, the opportunity hoarding would be something you would encounter more, even though it's not the primary driver of your inequality. And I think a lot of the dumb class theories we see right now is emerging by people confusing the secondary form of, of class competition for the primary form of class competition. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, look, look, don't look at the capitalist owner. Hey, look, look, your manager's an asshole. Manager, boo, boo, manager. Yeah. Those podcasters are assholes and they're probably managers somehow. Boo, professionals, boo. 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 <laughs> they're That's really sabotaging our otherwise good functioning Keynesian capital market. Boo. Licensed yeah, like, professionals are actually capitalists. That's where, how that where, works. Like, where do anime producers come into this, though, Tiberius? This is the question that we're all here to hear. They're PMC. They're APMC. Uh, I don't, uh, unless you got a trash can on the next slide, I don't think we're talking about anime. APMC, <laughs> Anime Professional Managerial Class. Oh, oh the worst. <laughs> how, did, how did I get stuck with the anime thing? What the hell, Tom? <laughs> this is how it's going to go from here on in. Okay. Oh, God damn it. Okay, um, Derek, do you want to take Tom? This you're you're an opportunity hoarder, is all I got to say. <laughs> yeah, fucking, uh, what's this opportunity I have? Editing is that it? Audio <laughs> editing, fuck's sake. <laughs> you're the I host. Mean, this is, you're this PMC. Is, yeah, you're 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 hoarding your opportunity to direct the conversation. This is an <laughs> outrage. Fucking the worst opportunity hoarding ever performed. <laughs> endless editing we must we uh, must we must we must assume that tom is somehow just a massive masochist and that's what he's he's just opportunity hoarding all the pain of cleaning this up that's it. Uh, <laughs> a, i mean a, opportunity hoarding of social capital and clout right as, yeah. as the headliner of the podcast tom that's gets right. all the tom gets all, all the, the benefits of the social capital <laughs> generated by the podcast itself yeah Fucking hell. Uh, it's like kink opportunity. I'm uh, edit kink opportunity hoarding. Okay, uh, Derek, take this problem two before right. I start talking. The explanatory strategy continue. Problem two, how to sustain and deepen exploitation and opportunity hoarding. Both of these mechanisms impose harms on others, and both pose a range of problems for, for would-be exploiters and opportunity hoarders. They face what Tilly calls organizational problems of creating solidarity, trust, interlocking expectation, and reliable forms of enforcement among those with stakes in hoarding and exploitation. Solution, categorical inequity. In absence of these durable categorical distinctions, they face constant difficulty in identifying allies, knowing whom to trust and whom to exclude, 
to reliably protect their monopolies and enforce subordination. These systems of social closure, exploitation, and control allow parties, even some victims of exploitation, to acquire stakes in these solutions. As a side note, this is what Adolf Reed doesn't shut the fuck up about, basically, this last point. These systems of social closure, exploitation, and control allow many parties, even those victims of exploitation, to acquire stakes in these solutions. That's what he's always talking about. White supremacy. No, he's always talking about black black leadership class because they're actually functionally able to use both capital and white supremacy to maintain a kind of special place within within, within a subcategory of oppressed peoples. Yeah, and, I can see this. Yeah. Yeah, that this is what he's actually this is his point. He just pretty much only focuses on the last bit. And also like it was a little haunting thinking about how much of our language of of social justice literally pulls directly from this idea of durable category distinctions being maintained. Like identifying allies, knowing mm -hmm. whom to trust and whom to exclude to, re to reliably protect monopolies and enforce subordination. It's a little creepy. Yeah, I mean, uh, although this is, these are also problems for the, the oppressed, right? Uh, right. It's, it's, it's just, as, as it says here, like they can easily turn over into another system of closure. Right, right, right. Well, I'm not saying that like that like social justice is a form of oppression. What I'm saying is like when you're in this kind of system and you go to use the tools that already exist in the kind of system instead of change it, you your tools replicate the things being done to you a lot of the time. And Tilly's interesting because he basically structurally lays that out, right? Like that, you know, I can say that as a hot offhand remark on Twitter and everyone can call me an asshole, but like this does structure if, if you're in this kind of system and you're trying to maintain exploitation opportunity hoarding the best way to do that is through perpetuating categorical inequities and also occasionally probably releasing them and switching them up when they get too too sclerotic so yep or the second order effects come in and kick you in the ass then you right. need the, the the key point here is uh in the solution description, they say they face constant difficulty in identifying allies, knowing whom to trust and whom to exclude. So in coming up with a recognizable category, they can help solve this problem by like lowering the sort of information costs, right? And so because these categories are known everywhere, they can also be taken up as uh, tools by the oppressed. And that can be bad. On this episode, you heard the theme tune The Order of the Pharaonic Jesters and Night of the Purple Moon by Sun Ra and his orchestra. Thank you for listening and please join me for the next episode of From Alpha to Omega. This show is a member of the Emancipation Network, a Marxist podcast and research collective. Make sure to check out our network sister podcasts General Intellect Unit, Jumpsuit Utopia, Mortal Science, and Swampside Chats. Thank you.